Okay, we're studying Hebrews and we're in chapter 12. We were looking at verse 1. So let me read that one more time and then continue on in the book of Hebrews. It says here, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There's a metaphor here of an athletic contest in an arena. This metaphor is carried on for um, at least the first four verses, and probably we'd include verses 5 and 6 as a continuation of the athletic arena metaphor. Now, there are two aspects of the metaphor. The first one is a foot race, a long-distance foot race, and the second one is actually a boxing arena where blood is shed. That's in verse 4. So we're in a real uh, battle, we're in a real race, in a real difficult um, but important endurance test. And the way we gain confidence and strength is by looking to Jesus, who is the champion. And I'm going to get a lot of discuss about different Greek words here and how they're um, translated, because there are several unique words. One of them is about Jesus being a champion, who is the ultimate victor, who's gone before us and shown us the way. So, um, we talked a little bit about this. I, I made the point that this cloud of witnesses is the people in Hebrews 11, who are the great people of faith. And I also pointed out that this didn't mean that they're literally watching us from heaven. Some people have interpreted this. There's nothing in the context that would indicate that that's the case. And one of the reasons I don't believe that's the case is heaven wouldn't be heaven if we had to watch people on earth sinning. Um, Or failing or whatever. So, uh, don't worry. Um, the, The witnesses, though, are people whose faith inspires us in in this battle and this race that we're in, a contest of stamina and endurance. <coughs> I have a little bit of a cold, so my voice may not be the best today. Um, we looked up some cross-references last week, and I had one more here that I wanted somebody to read. Um, uh, Sam Madrid, could you read? 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. 1 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. Do you not know that those who run in the race... All run, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. <clears throat> that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self exercises self control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not breathing the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preach to others, I myself am disqualified. Okay, so there Paul picks up the same uh, analogy 
is, is the Christian life is like a race and a contest. And we all know that people who are involved in athletics have to work very hard, especially running races. You have to, you have to train. And you have to train very, very hard. And 90, 99% of the time is what you're doing is training. The 1% is when you're actually in the race. Uh, but the, but what happens in the race is what it's all about. I used to, I was a cross country runner in high school, so I, I know what it's like. I used to run 12 months a year, even on the middle of the winter, because I didn't want to have to go through the pain of trying to get in shape again once I let myself get out. So the, this is what the Christian life is like. We are in a very important um, race, and it isn't to beat other people, okay, but it's to uh, be faithful to our Lord, to preach the gospel, to believe God and to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and to become more like Christ. So we are in a very important race as Christians and we need to be disciplined. Now we're going to see here in Hebrews that the Lord is in charge of our training regimen. He disciplines all of us that come to Him as we need and as He sees fit. Any questions about that? Okay. Um, let's go now to verse 2. This is talking about how we do this. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now there's a lot of... Uh, grammatical and Greek issues in this verse that could be translated more than one way. And so I'll be reading to you about some of those. But notice some of the repeated themes here. Fixing our eyes uh, can also be translated to look to. So we're looking to Jesus who's the ultimate witness, who's the ultimate um, champion. And the word, the word in verse 3, consider, would be analogous to fixing your eyes on. So to think about, reflect on Jesus, look to Jesus. He's the one that we need to keep our eyes on, figuratively speaking, uh, in order to be involved in his race and to hope to be successful. Now, some people have said that this fixing your eyes on Jesus means that you need to visualize Jesus. In other words, get a mental image of what he looks like. That's not true. That's not what this is talking about. It's not even a good... Translation of the Greek. Uh, having a mental image of what Jesus looks like is not at issue here. At issue is what Jesus did. That he died on the cross, he despised the shame that he ascended, and that he sits at the right hand of God. We don't know what Jesus looks like. But we're told not to make images of God. Right. Right. Christ, uh, we, will, we won't know exactly what he looks like until he returns, or we go to be with him. Right now, um, so this visualizing Jesus has no support from this particular text that we're discussing here. Now, um, he's the ultimate witness, and now there's an issue about this author and perfecter. Now, the word for author there is uh, a, a kind of a unique Greek word, and William Lane discusses that, and he comes up with the translation, the champion. The champion. So he'd be the ultimate contestant who's the ultimate champion 
that would be our role model, so to speak. Um, Here's what he says. The instruction to to look to Jesus sustains the metaphor of the runner who must keep his eyes fixed on the conclusion of this prescribed course. The members of the house church in the final and decisive stages of the race, Jesus is positioned at the finish line. Like a runner, the Christian must intently focus on the goal of Jesus. In in, uh, Hebrews 6.20, the designation of Jesus as forerunner brought before the congregation an athletic term entirely appropriate to the metaphor of the race. Now here is is a relative term implying the sequence of runners who must follow the pace setter to the completion of the course. Um, now, has anybody else here ever been, did you run you know, track in high school? You did too, Norm? Uh, I used to run, in Iowa they had a, a, a state law that no high school student could run more than two miles. <laughs> I don't know, I was in the 60s, they thought it would hurt you or something. So that's the longest our race could be was two miles, and that's the race that I ran was the two mile. But one of the things you didn't ever want to do is look back. And you might, you know, wonder why would that be? Well, because as soon as you start looking back to see who's gaining on you, you get beat. They go right past you. And so you have to look forward to the goal. And one of the things I learned was that I started out in a two-mile race. I paced myself early on. If I started out in, at the front, the only thing that could happen is people start passing you. And once that happens, it gets habit for me. <laughs> they go, one goes by, and oh no! Then you look back. Here comes another one. They go by, and pretty soon you just get totally beat. So I found out that what you have to do, and by the time I was a senior, I was one of the faster runners in our. I was the faster runner on our team, and I was, you know, at least competitive with most of the people in the other towns around us. And so I would start out at the end. I I would be make sure I'm somewhere near last place at the beginning of the two-mile race. And so the whole rest of the race was passing people. And I'd pass as many as I could. I didn't get past. I would pass. And hopefully you'd pass everybody, but if you didn't pass everybody, you'd get right up there with the front runners. Now, in this metaphor here, the idea is that if we're looking around us or looking back or seeing what everybody else is doing, rather than keeping our eyes on Jesus, who's the only one that matters, it's going to be very difficult to run the race because we'll uh, we'll just get defeated. They'll go right past us as soon as you look back. It's just very discouraging. Uh, I think there's a lesson in life. Didn't Paul say one thing I do pressing on? To, uh, I, 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 I press on to the high calling of God in Christ in Philippians chapter 3. Forgetting what lies behind. I look forward to the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Well, that's, that's what's going on here. Now, he goes on and says here, uh, William Lane, here, however, the writer places in opposition to Jesus a descriptive phrase remarkable for its conciseness. And he quotes it in the Greek and says, The champion in the exercise of faith is the one who brought faith to complete expression. And so there is quite a bit of discussion in various theological literature about about this use of the term champion. And that's how Lane thinks it should be um, translated. And the theme is that Jesus is a model for imitation. 
And that's not a common theme in in the Bible because the Bible is careful to prescribe the fact that Jesus or describe Jesus as the unique one, the only one. And obviously nobody else can do exactly what Jesus did. And we would reject theologically the idea that, that Jesus is simply an ethical role model. That's what theological liberalism did. They they took away Jesus as the substitutionary atonement, as the blood atonement, and said he's just an ethical role model so we can look to Jesus to know how to live, but we don't need to talk about things like the blood and, and so on. So uh, we want to avoid liberalism, but in this one passage, it is describing Jesus as a role model. It, right here. Yes, Dick. Isn't there, I mean, just go to the simple word author. You know, yeah. isn't, isn't he the author of our faith? And what's Lane got a problem with here? He doesn't think that's a, a sustainable translation of the Greek. Yeah, I know. And, and I'm not capable of being that high level of a Greek scholar. Now, some of these words are only used a couple, once or twice in the Bible, or maybe only once. And so they have to go out to classical Greek, to Jewish, like uh, Josephus or Philo, whoever may have used these words, and then come to a conclusion and then look at the context and say, okay, what did you mean here? And carrying forward the athletic metaphor plus the various Greek usages leads Lane to the conclusion that champion would fit the context and the usage elsewhere. Um, okay, do you want to bring over to Mike and then Dean? Bring the mic to Mike. <laughs> uh, John, John 5.19 says, Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. And uh, what I think that shows is um, that Jesus obeys the father perfectly, and you're talking about him as the champion of the faith who has given us the perfect example and uh, I think uh, John 5, uh, 19 backs that up. Okay. Dean? You mentioned context a lot when you, when you discuss things, but if we tie this into verse 1, verse 1 says that we have a cloud of witnesses. Mm-hmm. Verse 2 focuses on who we should actually be focusing on because as many good examples as we do have in the Christian community, the ultimate, Jesus, the ultimate yeah. is the one that we need to focus on. Exactly. See, that, I think that's what the context is telling us, that here's Noah, Moses, all these people, but the ultimate witness is Jesus, who is far superior than all these other ones. Now, according to Elaine, this word, uh, he's translating champion, archegos, uh, RK would be where the, the word for ruler is also used in Hebrews 2.10. Does somebody want to, Dick, could you look up Hebrews 2.10 and, and see once whether, uh, what the nuance of the word would be there? I'm using an ESV, by the way. ESV, English Standard Version? Yep. Okay, that's a good one. Yep, as so long as it's not the message. <laughs> Then we're starting to wonder. One of these days, brother. 
For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Okay, there they translated founder. Okay. So there's some dispute about how to take that term. He's the yeah. That, that, I think I read something in here about that as a cross reference. So that would be like um, Goliath was their champion. Well, uh, but I you know certainly it would be theologically correct to say that Jesus is the author of our faith because he is, and then it says he's the perfecter of faith. And I think in the Greek it says the faith, perfecter of the faith. Yes, Kathy. He's the author of our faith. Then how do people in that faith movement like try to blame someone's faith as being too weak if our faith comes from God Himself? Are they blaming God? Okay, uh, the faith movement actually. I did a bunch of research on this back in the '80s and how they understand faith. And what th- what they do is that they 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 make Jesus so, sort of uh, not so unique, other than he was the first one to figure this out. So what they teach is that Jesus comes and figures out how to tap into the God kind of faith. Alright? And that having done so, he's able to do all these miracles. And that if we also become one who has the God kind of faith, they, they, for example, translate this passage in Hebrews that by faith God created the world, rather than we know by faith God created the world. So God used the principle of faith to create and if we tap into the same principle of faith that God has and that Jesus did, then we can create like God created and we can be little gods. All right? And uh, that's heresy, I hope you realize. <laughs> so, but still, do they not think that our faith comes from him? Would they not think that? Uh, I'm trying to remember. It was, it was about quite a few years ago when I researched it and I read all that. Do you know, Scott? They, they believe that faith is a force, yeah. and your words are a container for that force. Right. It's, it's like <laughs> it faith. Like witchcraft to me. It's faith is like some sort of a metaphysical entity in the universe. Okay. So when they say faith, is, they take Hebrews eleven one. Faith is the substance. So they say faith has substance. It's a real thing that you can tap into. Star Wars, the force. Well, it's very similar to the idea of the force and. And it can be used however you see fit. It's, it's a, there's some good books. If you're interested in researching the faith movement, the best book out still, I think, is that Dan McConnell's book um, called A Different Gospel. Uh, okay, give Scott a chance to get there. But uh, he, he lays that all out in his book. Mike, um, Dan McConnell. Uh, I, we talk about faith, and, and it says that Jesus is our the champion of our faith. Um, but I, I, I think that the complete fruition of faith is, is uh, complete and total obedience. And I think the obedience part of faith, which 
uh, is faith acted out, acted upon. Um, you know, sometimes we separate those two things, and I think it's hard <coughs> to get a proper picture when you separate faith and obedience. Yeah. Because, you know, there's a, there's a head knowledge of faith and a, an assent to it, but the complete perfection of it comes in, in uh, total obedience. And that's where Christ is perfect because his uh, total obedience to the Father, his total surrender, uh, being completely one, which actually uh, has existed from all eternity, but is displayed on the earth uh, through his life and it, death. In his and incarnation, yeah. So uh, obedience is linked to faith many times in the New Testament. And, and uh, I think sometimes when we start separating the two, you know, faith is, like you said, this metaphysical thing. Then we start getting off into, uh, you know, uh, unsolid ground. There. Yeah, I mean, they're also trying to use faith as a means to manipulate the universe for our own benefit. Um, and, again, that's not what it's all about. Dean, Dean Popek, yeah. The faith movement defines faith or implies that the faith that they're trying to pass on to their congregation <coughs> is like a carrot held out in front of a donkey. That you lure the donkey along by the promise of the carrot. And if you obtain the faith that we have, then you will be able to... It, it's a works mentality. And when the faith and your healing doesn't come about because you have a lack of faith, they always blame the person. Yeah. They're not exercising. It's always your fault. It's always their fault, and it's their scapegoat. I've got it, you want it, but you've got to work to get it. Yeah. You know, uh, let me read something else that says here by Lane. Taking a clue from the writer's interest in the notions of origin and completion, beginning and end, the predicates are cake ghosts and... Teleotes suggests that Jesus is the initiator and head of the rank and file in the order of faith, just as he is the one who brought faith to its ultimate expression. He was the first to express unqualified obedience to the will of God in a fallen world. Consigned to death and so displayed the goal of faith as well as his paramount power. So I think that says it well. Yes, Larry. You know, in that explanation, I didn't hear anything uh, that might have any derivative or root word. And the word that comes to mind when I'm thinking of when you talk about author of the faith or champion is the uh, word protokos, you know, first order, originator, of preeminent. Example. Yeah, but here, here the word has RK, as a, which would be like a ruler, okay, uh, archegos. And so the, the scholars are looking for the, just the right nuance. But I think we get the idea here of the of the perfect example who brought faith to complete expression. Now, here it says, who for the joy set before him. Now we have a, yet another issue here. Um, I, I was studying this just on this one verse. I had four, no, one, two, six or seven pages of detailed commentary to wade through, discussing the Greek words and so on and so forth. So it's it's not a simple passage. By the way, the, the book of Hebrews has the more, most advanced Greek as far as the quality of Greek writing of any book in the New Testament. And but we don't know for sure who the author is. And um, Luther thought it was Apollos because he was so eloquent. 
Um, let us look at this idea now of the joy set before him. So what is this joy set before Jesus? And there is a um, discussion of the term set before. What does it mean? It's Here's how Elaine again wants to translate this. There, Jesus' prayers and supplication were described as a priestly offering, this is in Hebrews 5, to the one who was able to save him from death, Hebrews 5, 7. The joy that was within his grasp, that's how he's translating it, the joy that was within his grasp was that of being delivered from an impending and degrading death. Having learned obedience through the suffering of death, Hebrews 5, 8, Jesus was perfected, Hebrews 5, 9, not by being removed provisionally from death, but by removal from the power of death definitively through vindication and enthronement at the Father's right hand. So, what he's saying is that this joy set before him is not a good translation, that it it should mean the joy that was within his grasp. And so you'd either conceive that of just maintaining his relationship with the Father without coming to earth and going through the sorrow, if you think of Philippians 2, or in the garden when he says, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thine. And so he gave up that desire to to escape the, the hurt and punishment and sorrow of the cross and despised the shame and went through the horrible death and mockery of the sinners against himself that we're going to talk about and found his vindication in the in the um, resurrection and enthronement at the right hand of God. Now, again, this is very complex theology here, so it's open for discussion. But the joy set before him then would be avoiding the cross, which he did not do. He chose rather to do the shame. I'm not sure if I believe this. I've heard it for quite a long time, so I... Familiar with it, but from my understanding, the joy set before him was the church, the people that he was saved. I, I've heard that too. I'll just repeat that because we didn't get it into the mic, and then Brian wants to say something. Um, I've heard that before too. That the joy set before him was the church. The problem with that interpretation, and I've heard that for years, is that there's nothing in the context to show us that. Okay, if we look in the verse itself. We're fixing our eyes on Jesus. He's not fixing his eyes on us. So if the joy set before him was us, then then we'd be the object of his desire or his attention. But that's the opposite of what the passage here is saying. We're to fix our eyes on Jesus. Uh, okay, Brian and then Karen, then Mike. My uh, Amplified Bible has a reference to... Uh... Psalm 110.1. Yes, that's the right hand of the throne. Right, and uh, make your adversaries... Uh, <coughs> Footstool to your feet. Yeah, sit thou at thy right hand. So that's the enthronement verse that's so often... Do you want to pass that down to Karen down there? And then we'll discuss this. Couldn't the phrase, in the joys of before him, just be referring to fulfilling God the Father's will? Such as in the garden he prays that... Yeah, I think so. Right. It it somehow has to do with pleasing the Father and following through on His mission. I think. Okay, Uh, Tyler. 
is it possible also that since the whole context of the whole, I mean, the whole chapter 11 is about by faith and faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, and it's all about the promises that had been received but hadn't been seen, and Jesus is fulfilling God's will and knows that he will be returning to glory, and he is by faith being obedient unto death and is acting on the promises that he, that God, his Father, has promised to him. And therefore, the joy that is set before him is to return to the Father and receive those promises. That's that's what I had seen it as. Before. Okay, that's that would be how. Uh, if Wayne's wrong about the translation and the, and the and the New American Standard is correct, then that would be the correct interpretation. Is your ESV different, Dick? Okay. Okay, so Dick says in the, the you have a Sproul study Bible. Yeah. Okay, he said in the footnote they talk about both of these things and they give them both plausibility. I don't think we'd be going into theological error in either case. Sometimes that happens with passages where it, there's two ways it could be taken, and either one would be correct theologically, but we're not always necessarily sure. I think that's what we got here, Larry. I don't know if you mentioned this in the footnotes, because I think I got the same Bible, but it says here, and here's something, the key word in it. It says that Jesus endured the cross in anticipation of the joy of being Savior of his people when the necessary suffering was over. Okay, so the joy would be being the Savior of the people. I, I Personally, I think it's probably more focused on the Father and obedience. I think that's the focus. Now it says here, he endured the cross and despised the shame. Now endured here um, means um, he was willing to tolerate being defamed, mocked, degraded. This was considered a, a, a crucifying someone was a sadistic, shameful, cruel treatment. And the Romans would only reserve this for really bad criminals, never a Roman citizen, but people they despised and people they wanted to make look despicable in order to horrify people, rather than scare them in away from ever raising any sedition against Rome or to make an example of them or just to to make sport of someone to display their own would-be superiority by by crucifying them. So Jesus took upon himself the most horrid type of death, and not just the physical torture, but the anguish of being mocked, ridiculed, and scorched. Uh, we saw that in Matthew, where Matthew describes the cruel mockery and the degradation that was heaped upon the, the Lord of the universe. So, this one who is the one that we are to look at, look to, to fix our eyes upon in the sense of concentrating our attention, looking away from the sin that so easily entangles us in verse 1, laying aside the sin in the world and, and, and running with endurance the race set before us and doing so by focusing, concentrating attention on Jesus, who he is, what he did, and why it's important. And that's the key of the gospel. This is something we need to proclaim all the time and everywhere. Who Jesus is, what he did, and why it's important.
someone asked me because I, I was we were going to have evangelistic outreach and they were bringing a preacher in, and I don't trust preachers, and you shouldn't either, <laughs> including me. But yeah, uh, I, uh, I said. Uh, well, you know, there's an awful lot of ideas about what the gospel is, and it seems like a lot of people can't figure it out nowadays. And so this person I was talking to said, all right, what are we supposed to preach? I said, well, let's try this little outline. Who is Jesus Christ? What did he do? And why do we need him? What's the answer to that? And if you think about it, that forces you to go right to the gospel. See, this is, that's the deficiency and, and this verse only has power for us if we understand those things. And it's, it's all laid out right here in Hebrews. But um, who is he? Well, the book of Hebrews said he's the, he is the one through whom God created the world. He is the eternal creator God who came in the flesh, was born of a virgin. So the preexistence of Christ is necessary and, and it needs to be proclaimed. Why? Because... The majority of people think that Jesus is just a regular human who founded a religion. They don't know more than that if somebody doesn't tell them. So, and so when we just say, well, you need Jesus, they go, yeah, I suppose, uh, I suppose that he's okay. You know, what did the Doobie Brothers, was it? Jesus is just okay. Yeah, he's alright. Yeah, he's just okay. <laughs> yeah, he'll do. And, uh, and so we need to, to tell people about the uniqueness of Christ because people don't come with that built-in knowledge. They don't even hear about it in churches anymore. And then what he did, again, this is the whole idea of the substitutionary atonement that has to be explained because people are offended by it and it's not what they think they need. They don't realize that their sin is so loathsome in the sight of God that his wrath is directed against their sin and that without a blood atonement, there's going to be no escape from God's punishment. People don't come built in with that knowledge. It has to be proclaimed when the gospel's preached, or they'll never know it. All right. And then his resurrection is has to be part of the gospel pro, uh, proclamation. Because every other founder of a world religion died, so there's nothing unique in the fact that Jesus died. Uh, the significance of his death is unique. But what's truly unique is that he predicted his own resurrection from the dead. And he was literally bodily raised before many witnesses. That makes Christianity unique and it validates all of the claims that the Bible makes. These things are the focus of our attention for, for the Christian. It says that we, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, all of this is, it needs to be set before us. What he did, who he is, what he did, and the significance of what he did and why it's important to us should be the, is the greatest truth that we could hear and know and believe. And it's how we run the race. So that's why I, I really believe in gospel preaching, because not only is it God's ordained means of saving the lost, we need to hear it ourselves over and over again. Because uh, we might as well get used to it, because if you read the book of Revelation, when it talks about the songs in heaven, they're about the blood of the Lamb and and what, who Christ is, what he did, and why we need him. They're still singing about that in heaven. So that's how significant it is and how important it is. Yes? Um, recently I've had the opportunity to talk to several people about Christ. Yes. And one of the people is a Baha'i. Okay, um, go ahead. We're going to give you a mic here. <coughs> oh, you talk, repeat, you talk to a Baha'i. I, I talked to a, um, a guy who takes me to and from appointments, and he's a Baha'i. Um, 
I don't know what you call Baha'i Baha'i believes that all religions are saying the same thing. Yeah, every and, and they're 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 going to try to integrate all the religions into one, and uh, that's kind of their idea. Well, it was interesting because we, as we were talking, he was asking about what I believed, and as I was sharing with him about Christ, who he was, he said, "Well, we believe that Christ was the Son of God." Everything I said, he reiterated, and it was interesting, and it came to a point where I thought. Where do I go with this? And I wasn't sure, and I thought, I need to think through how I present this. And I also came across a similar situation with another person who I'd never met, and we got to talking. And he, but it was interesting in that more, the more people I talked to, they all seemed to focus on other things rather than who Christ is. Yeah, they, the, okay. Mormons will do the same thing, by the way. They'll just agree with you. Just like the Baha'i did. Oh yeah, we believe Jesus is the Son of God. Yeah, we believe that Jesus died on the cross. Uh, the Mormons will agree with, every, with you on everything. The problem is they got a different definition for every one of these terms, including Jesus. Alright? And so definitions are absolutely essential. And if you get specific with somebody like that, uh, what I just mentioned would be a good place. That Jesus existed from all eternity with God and as God. Just that little phrase right there. Jesus existed from all eternity with God and as God. Jesus created the whole universe out of nothing. Now, that sort of thing is going to challenge their definition of who Jesus is. Because they're, they're, then the Mormons are going to start departing, parting company with you, and so will Baha'i, and so will everybody else. And so the pre-existence of Christ with full deity from eternity is that essential doctrine that we need to uphold. Otherwise, people will just agree with us even though they're not converted. So, And then when it comes to the he died on the cross, we have to explain to people the significance of the blood atonement. All right, And sometimes it helps to explain in the Old Testament they had animal sacrifices because they, they, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Uh, explain that God is angry uh, against sin and that sin he's a holy God and that nobody could ever come into his presence with, as a sinner. And that the blood that Jesus shed was a substitutionary atonement to take away our sins if we believe in him. Now, all of those things are unique Christian doctrines that people are going to reject if if they're explained to them. But if we just say this simple phrase, I believe Jesus died on the cross... And that he was the son of God, you'll, that that that's not unusual for them to. Oh yeah, I agree. agree I agree. I believe that. Uh, Dick and then Ryan. It's the tailing of the same thing you just said, but the simple part is, uh, I think they would have a difference, different opinion of our lost condition. And I think that if you start on that side of it, they'd say, no, 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 we're basically good. And then you got no reason for Christ. Right, exactly. You don't know what the problem is. And then also the phrase Son of God can be interpreted a lot of different ways because uh, they, some people say they believe Jesus is the Son of God would say they believe everybody's the Son of God. All humans are, so they wouldn't have any trouble saying Jesus is that. Yes, right. I'm kind of coming in midstream here, so I hope that this wasn't covered. If it was, stop me. But a lot of people ask about the preexistence of Christ and how it's a necessary part of the faith as they'll say, well, where, where does it say that in the scriptures? I've had that, you know, you know, if you look at um, like 1 Corinthians 15, Paul doesn't state that in the Kerygma. 
But the, <coughs> the thing is, is in John, Jesus says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And it's necessary. A lot of a lot of commentaries, or a lot of uh, translations, um, translate that I am He, but the He isn't in there. It's the He going me. Yeah. So Jesus is making a statement there. Unless you believe that I am, meaning the God of the ages, preexistent from all eternity. Yes. You will die in your sins. So. It's so it's a necessary belief for salvation. Exactly. I, I totally. And and you know what the Jews understood that because they, they woo woo woo. What did you do? <laughs> Anyhow, um, they, if you read that story, that's in John 8, I think, 22 or 23 there. If you read on, they end up wanting to stone him. Uh, because they knew what he was claiming. And it made them very angry. You can't, you can't say you're the great I am. That's, that's the God who was at the burning bush who the Moses met. How can you claim that's you? We know who you are. You're a son of fornication. Isn't that what they said? And you know what's interesting, Bob, in that context, too, they, if you read that story, they, they in a sense, align themselves with them. Those, it doesn't talk about those who, in John, use believes in a, in, a, in a kind of distinct fashion. Yeah. Those who believe them, and all of a sudden, in John, all of a sudden, Jesus is talking about them as being sons of the devil because they wanted to kill them. So yeah. they, they had kind of made a profession of Christ. But then once he made these hard statements that he is God, they wanted to kill him. Yeah. Jesus kept, he knew they didn't have legitimate faith because he says uh, to those who believed him, if you continue in my word, you shall be my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and truth shall make you free. And then that's what set up the, then they really got angry because they didn't want to admit they weren't free now. They said, we're Abraham's children. Brian's kind of saying something that, up to that point, they were agreeing with what the Baha'i would do. They yeah. Saying, yeah, I can agree with you. I, I, I can align with myself. I, yeah. yeah, until he started no, pressing home. The, in, yeah, no. until, until the whole thing comes out. Now, that's why if we preach the whole counsel of God, and Paul said that he did that in Acts 20, he taught faith towards God, repentance from dead works and faith towards God, and then he declared unto them the whole counsel of God. He said, therefore, I'm free from the blood of all men. If that is proclaimed from the pulpit, then what will happen? Because Jesus didn't just stop when they made mental assent. Okay, okay, now i got all these followers. Let's just quit while we're ahead. Um, if, I'm going to talk about this in this book that's going to be published in January, but uh, one of the bigger churches in America just has a little decision card where you just turn it over and say, I believe in Jesus, and drop it in the offering, and that makes you a Christian. All right, and then and then you're ready to be baptized. Um, but if you keep pressing home the personal work of Christ, like Jesus Himself did, He didn't just stop there. Oh, you believe in me? Good. Let's go. We've got it made now. He said, "You need to be my disciples." The whole claims of Christ should be uh, spoken. Um, Luann. Well, this whole thing just makes me think of the Oneness Pentecostal Church, too, because, you know, they believe in the dispositions and that, you know, Jesus came and he died on the cross and then now the Holy Spirit is here, but they were only three um, entities. Yeah, modes. Right. And so, you know, you have this discussion back and forth because they have the whole um, Jesus dying on the cross and the whole resurrection, but they don't believe that he is God. And their common question back will be, well, when you go to heaven, who do you think you're going to see? Because God is a spirit, so they think you're going to see Jesus. Yeah, that, that's called modalism. 
Yeah. Yeah, and it's, and it's heretical. It's totally heretical. It's a denial of the Trinity. They, uh, I ran into a guy that says, when you get to heaven, you're going to see three male persons who look just like us, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he was telling me that, and I, I re- told him he was a heretic, and he cursed me and left the church and never came back. <laughs> I'm always subtle about these things. That's, like, that's almost like Mormonism. Is that, is that like the oneness yes. concept? Yeah, it, it's, and again, it's very heretical. All right, let's see if we can finish our passage here. Uh, author and perfecter, Joy said before we were discussing that, and we, I'm saying I don't think it's us, I think it's the Father or the laying aside His divine prerogatives to suffer and to be raised and then to ascend into heaven. Despising the shame, um, what was the quote I wanted to do there? Despising the shame. Uh, Lane says, this reflects the universal response of antiquity toward the horrific nature of crucifixion and underscores Christ's utter humiliation in dying, dying ignominiously. Is that right? Remember we tried to do that on the radio once and we decided just to forget it? Who was that? <laughs> Me? I thought it was you, Dick. We were doing a radio broadcast. I was trying to say ignominious, and I don't know, I said ignoramus or something. I guess. I mean, I, but yeah, so finally you say, okay, what's a synonym? Let's think of some word we can say. Ignominiously, like a slave or common criminal. Okay? And so... This was a literal shame, and it was considered shameful by one and all to die on the cross. And it was considered a curse by the Jews, according to the book of Deuteronomy. Then it says he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Psalm 110 and verse 1 is the most quoted and or alluded to Old Testament passage in the New, as far as Messianic passage. Psalm 110 and verse 1. You can't uh, overestimate the importance of Psalm 110 and verse 1 to the early Christian faith and the expression thereof. Uh, it's cited by uh, Peter on the day of Pentecost. Um, well, let's just discuss that. Why is Psalm 110 verse 1 so important that it gets mentioned over and over and over again in the New Testament? What do you think? Uh, Larry? Isn't one of those Lord's I think it's one Adonai and the other one is something else. You mean? Uh, it says, the Lord says to my Lord. I mean, you yeah, right there, that, there's okay, there's a good point. Now, Jesus, remember what Jesus did? He quoted that and he asked the scribes, what does it mean? The Lord said to my Lord, who was he referring to? Well, they couldn't answer it, could they? They, and they refused to. So then he said, okay, I'm not going to answer you either then. <laughs> yeah, Ryan. <coughs> it helps me because the people listen to this on the Internet and they can't hear any, what anybody says. Um, I, the reason why 110 is, is so significant is because it speaks of the, the ascension. The Lord said to my Lord, come and rule at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So there's a reign. There's a reign of the king, but it's at the right hand of the Father. So it really was, in one sense, an apologetic against the, the, the thought that the Messiah was going to come and 
and conquer right away. There was exactly. going to be a time of rain where it's going to rain at the right hand of the Father until all of his enemies are made a footstool. Which is a later event. <clears throat> a later event. And, it talks, and that, so if there's one, really one passage that kind of speaks of two comings, it's, it's implicitly that one. Absolutely. Absolutely, that's right. The reason the New Testament apostles quoted this over and over again was it, it was their justification of believing that Christ was reigning as Messiah, when the Jews said, no, when Christ reigns, he can only reign when he literally is here and has literally already defeated his enemies. That's what the kingdom is going to look like. And since Jesus didn't defeat the enemies of the Jews, and he wasn't literally on the throne now, they said he can't be the Messiah. So Psalm 110 and verse 1 was the proof that God from all, all along intended that the, he first would reign from the right hand of the Father, and then later the enemies are made a footstool and he would literally reign on the earth. So we have two advents. Yes, Steve. Wouldn't in a way when he sort of defeated the greatest enemy by being raised from the dead, that he would have defeated Satan? He defeated death. Well, yeah, in a way it seems like it would be the same thing. Yeah, well, it's, it's, yeah, that's a good point, Steve, because earlier in Hebrews, let me get my Bible. Early in Hebrews, it talks about that, uh, about our bondage, uh, was, was to the fear of death, and that's something Jesus conquered. Um, is that in Hebrews 2? It's been so many years we've been in Hebrews, see, we have to keep going back, remember where we've been. Um, yeah, here it is. Okay, let me just read a little a good reminder. The book of Hebrews starts with a, with a description of the person and work of Christ. It's a beautiful description, quoting the Old Testament. We should be doing the same. That's my contention, is that churches, every Christian church, ought to be proclaiming clearly the person and work of Christ regularly and forthrightly so that people don't think the Baha'i believe the same thing as we do, like, like you were saying. All right? Let's just look at this. Um, For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one testified somewhere, saying, What is man that thou rememberest him, or the son of man that thou art concerned about him? Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, hast crowned him with glory and honor, and hast appointed him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him, but now we do not yet see things subjected to him. But we see him, now looking to Jesus, not just man, but the ultimate one, Jesus, we see him who has been made for a little while lower than angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons of, to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. There's that phrase, author of salvation, same Greek word we're looking at. <laughs> for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. Then it says in verse 14, Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. That's what you were saying, Steve. And, and he might deliver those who, through fear of death, were subject to slavery all of their lives. So we are, we are delivered from the fear of death in the sense that death can no longer rule over us because he's raised and we believe in him and we will be also raised 
in glory. Okay? So that's, um, that's what it says. Now, and our, back to our passage, which also mentions the author here. He sat down to the right hand of the throne of God. Absolutely critical to our theology. That passage also establishes the uh, preexistence of Christ. And it says, the Lord said to my Lord. Jesus brought that up. Who was David's Lord? There's two persons there, right? So now you have the deity of Christ. It's not just God, but it's God and Christ. All right, so now you have the deity of Christ in that passage. You have the idea that he's going to have a session of reigning at the right hand of God. And so the claim of the early church was that that's true now. That Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. That he reigns from there. And it also preserves us from false messiahs. Okay? If he's, if he's, if he's at the right hand of God, anybody who comes along and says, I'm the Christ, and, uh, they're false. You can really see the, you can really see the, uh, influence of the Psalm 110 in, in the whole book of Hebrews because Psalm 110 also has the Melchizedek proclamation. Yes. Which is a huge part of, of the thought in, in Hebrews. Yeah, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, as quoted in Hebrews. In, in Psalm 110. And, you know, it also talks about rule in the midst of your enemies and the, they're just, the concepts there are so powerful. When you think of rule in the midst of your enemies, telling the Messiah rule in the midst of your enemies, that that was such, that'd be such a radical concept at that time when the expectation was to conquer the enemies. A rule in the midst of your enemies, he's ruling at the right hand of the Father. Wow, the kingdom of this world is still seemingly working the same, but he's ruling in the midst of his enemies. Yeah. Gathering this new kingdom. There's, there's, by the way, there's a false doctrine about this that says that Jesus is stuck at the right hand until we conquer his enemies. Have you heard that one? Yeah, yeah the dominion theory that Jesus can't come back until the church defeats all of the enemies. It's going to be a long way. <laughs> well, Gary Norris says he doesn't matter if it takes 30,000 years. God's got a lot of time on his hands. But I don't think it's going to happen either. Uh, and besides, see, see what happens when you get away from literal Bible prophecy and you start believing these things like preterism. Then all of a sudden, there's plausibility to these things. But but if you take literal Bible prophecy, we know how the enemies will be defeated. It'll be at the Battle of Armageddon and at the very end of the Great Tribulation when Christ returns and literally defeats his enemies. Um, the church isn't going to do it for him by establishing kingdoms now. I thought about maybe writing an article entitled, The Kingdom of God Does Not Have a Zip Code. <laughs> but I, you know, that's a good idea. Yeah, yeah. The kingdom of God has no zip code. And, uh, okay, did you have one? Yeah. yeah, just a quick question along those lines. You can't buy ground and make holy ground for God. No. I mean, the concept of buying little plots of land. You know, yeah, you got to support this because we're buying land for God to make a church for God here. God already owns the entire universe. <laughs> yeah, that's, and you hear that often, and it shows a, a misunderstanding. We hear people say, send in your donations because we want to buy a, a place for the kingdom of God. <laughs> you know, it's a bit, God owns the whole universe now. And we're stewards, but you can't buy anything and make it the kingdom because we own it. Yes, Sam. Uh, after you know studying these first three uh, verses in chapter twelve, uh, and then going through the implications of what the joy is, I think that 
I would argue that as you go to how to apply this for the application of this, we would also set our eyes on that joy, which is eternal life with the Father, mm-hmm. where, where Jesus is seated. So that's the joy. Here yeah, he's the joy set before us. Right. Okay, we ran out of time, and I'm just about out of voice, and i got a whole sermon to preach, so...